0: All right. Let's uh, show our appreciation for the children's ministry workers who are looking after things this morning. Amen. Amen. I understand that I'm not likely to receive a great deal of applause for my skills as a weather forecaster. A number of you have uh, have made mention of that this morning. In my defense, it was actually quite lovely at 7:30 this morning when I came in. There was just a little light dusting of snow in the air couple of centimeters on the ground. As I was coming in, the plow guy was coming out. It looked absolutely marvelous. I understand things worsened a little bit over the next couple of hours. Uh, Well, welcome to Ontario, right, where the weather forecast is good for five minutes or so. Anyway, uh, great to be here. Good to have you with us. If you have your Bible with you, I would love for you to open it now to Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 22. Last week, uh, Pastor Matt walked us through Uh, the story of the healing of the lame man in Acts chapter 3. That healing, of course, went off like a bomb in the city of Jerusalem uh, because everybody knew that man. He had been uh, parked out in front of the temple for years. In fact, uh, the last verse in the part of the story that we're going to read today says, so this is verse 22, Acts 4, 22, For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Forty years old is ancient, according to my teenage children. Uh, so think how long this, this brother had been sitting out front of the temple. We can imagine that he, he probably started sitting out there when he was 15 or 16 years old, the age at which men would normally begin to go to work. But because of his condition, his only source of income would have been the charity of those heading into the temple for worship. So for 25 years, think of that, for 25 years, Folks on their way into worship in the temple had been walking by this fellow. Uh, they'd probably got used to sticking a few coins in their, in their pocket, as it were, to, to throw in his cup on the way inside. But then all of a sudden, he's not sitting there anymore. In fact, the text says that he was walking and leaping and praising God. He had gone from sitting on a mat with a cup in his hand to break dancing in the court of the temple, and everybody was talking about it. It was the talk of the town. Everybody knew what had happened. Folks wanted to find out what was going on. And so Peter took the opportunity and preached an impromptu sermon about Jesus. Peter very wisely said, don't look at me. Don't look at me. Look at Jesus. He's the one who did it. Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And so the message here is that Jesus is still doing signs and wonders. He's he's doing them now through the apostles, but he's still doing them. He's still lighting up road flares, as it were, in order to guide people toward the gospel of God. That's what's going on in the story. Now, here in chapter 4, because of the uproar that this uh, created, Peter and John have been arrested, and they now have the opportunity to give an explanation for this miracle to the Jewish authorities, and that's the part of the story we're entering into now. So let's listen in. We're going to pick up the story at chapter 4. I'll begin reading at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power... Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I feel like we have permission this morning to uh, take a bit of a zoomed-in approach. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to get to that theme of conflict with the civil authorities that, is, uh, that reaches sort of its, its climax or its culmination in Acts 5. In Acts 5, of course, we get the uh, the main passage in the New Testament we would consult in order to develop a bit of a theory of civil disobedience. And that theme is kind of anticipated here when they say, hey, listen, uh, you're know, you going to have to judge whether we're acting rightly or wrongly, but we we have to speak. God told us to speak, so we're going to speak. You have to decide what consequences are associated with that. We'll get to that theme, as I say, uh, when we meet it again, and we'll just kind of pick up this passage and add it on there when we have that discussion. And then as well, uh, because this is a continuation of the story that Pastor Matt was dealing with last week, I don't think we need to necessarily cover all of that ground as well. And so that allows us to zoom in on what I think is the heart and center and essence of this passage. One of the amazing things about this passage is how quickly and how naturally Peter transitions from a question about healing to a statement about salvation. Did you notice that? The Jewish authorities ask Peter a very straightforward question. They say, by what power or by what name did you do this? They asked him about the healing. But Peter moved from the healing, from the sign, to the thing signified. He said, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So that's, that's the healing. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. John Stott says here, we notice the ease with which Peter moves from healing to salvation, and from the particular to the general. He sees one man's physical cure as a picture of the salvation which is offered to all in Christ, close quote. That's exactly right. Peter understood that this wasn't ultimately about the healing. This wasn't ultimately about the sign. This was about the thing signified. The healing was a picture of the salvation that is ours in Christ. And so I want to park there. I want to camp out on this picture And I want to ask what it is saying to us about the salvation that is found in Christ. First and foundational thing I think we need to say, of course, is that it is a salvation from sin. Now, that would have been intuitive to the first folks to observe this miracle and the first folks to hear Peter's explanation and Peter's sermon. I'm not sure if that connection is intuitive or natural for us today. But in that culture, there was an assumed Connection, an assumed relationship between sin and disease. Disease was in the world because sin was in the world. They understood that connection. They understood that if you wanted to do something about disease, then you would have to do something about sin. That connection made sense in their minds. Jesus understood that they understood that. He knew that full well. He understood what questions they were asking every time he did a healing. And so sometimes he would short-circuit the process. He He would jump right into it. You remember that in Mark 2, when Jesus healed the paralytic, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. And you remember, folks were freaked out by that. Because, of course, who can forgive sins but God alone? And yet it cannot be denied that Jesus had just healed this Brother, so what in the world was going on? Jesus perceives in their hearts that they're asking that question. So he says, Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your mat, and go home? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. You see that? It's all a piece. It's all one thing, Jesus says, and I can do it all. I can heal people because I have authority on earth to forgive sins. It's a profound theological statement. It is sin, you see, that ultimately blocks us from receiving the blessings of Almighty God. That's why in James 5... In the passage about calling the elders to pray, do you remember that? We and by the way, that should probably be said more often than it is said. From here, and I take responsibility from that. If if you are sick, if you are wrestling with an ailment or a disease, and you need grace from God, whatever it is you're looking for, you can. Call the elders. We, we do elder prayer on Monday night. On most Monday nights, it's just us praying as elders and pastors. We get together, we pray. We pray through the care list. Uh, we pray for the uh, prayer requests that are mentioned here on a Sunday morning, so make sure you're putting prayer requests in there. We pray for those. But then I don't, I don't know what the ratio would be. One of the brothers probably be better at guessing that than I am, but uh, I'll say one out of eight or one out of nine. Fair. James is nodding his head. Uh, someone will call and say, can I come in and be specifically prayed for? And they'll come in, and they'll sit, and and we'll gather around, we anoint them with oil, we lay hands on them, and we pray. And of course, whenever we do that, we read James 5, because that's the passage that gives us instruction about how to do that. And in that passage, it says this in verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. Do you you hear that causal sentence? And so, again, I should probably explain this more often than I do as well to avoid misunderstanding. Inevitably, invariably, when folks sit in that chair, one of the questions I ask them is, I say, you know, brother or sister, is there a sin that, that you would wish to confess today? And Sometimes folks are offended by that. Like, what did John tell you? Uh, you know, or did my wife call you? And and we say, oh no, no, brother or sister. No, no, no. We say, we ask this of, of, of everybody. If if there is unconfessed sin in your life, then there's no point in going any further with this exercise, because unconfessed, unforgiven sin blocks us from receiving the blessings of Almighty God. I don't think it could be any clearer. Let me read the verse again. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There is a worldview. There is a set of assumptions behind that verse. And it is the assumption that unconfessed, unforgiven sin blocks us from receiving the blessings of God. Unconfessed, unforgiven sin also, it doesn't just block us from receiving blessings. It actually, according to the Bible, attracts the active wrath of God. The Bible is very clear. If you harbor sin in your heart, then you will attract the wrath and curse of God. The prophet Zechariah had a vision once of a giant flying scroll. An angel of the Lord explained the meaning. He said, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. So he saw this it was a huge scroll. I mean, the dimensions are massive. Do you know that giant Canadian flag they, they fly over there at uh, Walmart and Staples or whatever it is? Uh, it, there's, imagine a scroll that size rolled up into a tube and phoom, flying back and, and forth across the earth. That's, that's what he sees. And he's, he says, what, what's this all about? This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side and everyone who swears falsely. So it sounds like this giant flaggy scrolled missile thing has writing all over it. It sounds like it's got the the moral law of God. Everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it both timber and stones. So the angel says that God has basically fired off providential powers from his throne. He has basically fired out heat seeking missiles that are attracted to unconfessed, unforgiven sin. So wherever sin is being given safe harbor, those missiles are attracted. God, of course, is a a good creator. It is his will and intention to restore creation, and therefore he is doing what needs to be done to remove from it the stain and corruption of sin. So he has set loose forces and powers that are designed to seek it out and destroy it. Now the prophet, of course, is sharing this, sharing this information, sharing this vision, as an encouragement to get rid of sin. Every time you sin... It's like you're swallowing a bag of iron filings. And, and and now there is a giant, heat-seeking, magnetic-targeted missile of power and wrath coming at you, fired from the throne of Almighty God. So how are we going to deal with that? Well, of course, according to the New Testament, on the cross, Jesus basically absorbs all of the sin that is laid on him through confession and faith. He becomes a sin sponge, the Apostle Paul says. You know the verse? He became sin. He's a sin sponge. Every sin that you confess in repentance and faith is absorbed on Christ in that moment who then attracts so as to absorb and obliterate the very curse of God. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Do you understand that? On the cross, on the tree, Jesus exposed himself to the wrath of Almighty God. He understood that we could never be blessed. We could never be blessed until he had absorbed and obliterated the curse of God against sin. We would never be able to receive those blessings while we were covered in the guilt and offense of sin. So he stepped in. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. All true salvation starts here. There is no further blessing until the curse and stain of sin has been removed. I'm not, sometimes I think the Holy Spirit uh, must have a direct line to the worship pastor uh, because Pastor Rob and I were both very, very busy this week. We were both involved in the uh, the TGC conference down in um, Oakville, and then prior to that, I went to the FEB national meetings on our behalf in um, Niagara Falls, so it was a very unusual week. We were here, there, and everywhere. And I don't even think we spoke to each other. I don't even know where Rob is. Where I, I, until very late in the in the week, and I think it was only to choose the final song, which I believe you had already chosen the song that I had suggested to. You. So it was, it was quite. An, the Holy Spirit was very involved in the preparation of this of this service. Is my point. And I hadn't really told Rob where I was going with this passage, but I noticed that several of the songs that we sang this morning mentioned being washed. In the blood of the Lamb. That is where salvation begins. As we're going to talk about in just a minute, it's not, it's not the end. It's not all that we want to say, but it is the beginning. It is quite literally the fountainhead of our salvation. We cannot receive the blessings of God while we are covered in the stain and offense of sin. That's gospel 101, isn't it? We, um, we sometimes, not always, but we sometimes sing around the table when we do family devotions at our house and uh, we confiscated a couple of the um, surplus old red Baptist hymn books uh, when we, we switched to the blue ones there. We had a whole big stack of them there, so I confiscated a few. It's just, just nice to sing around the table, and uh, we usually sing a cappello, or acapoco, as I like to say, and uh, what I, whenever we sing a song, I just, I mark the date of when we sang it, because I'm just, just keeping a bit of a memory of the things that we've done together, and uh, There are more date markings for the song, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, than I think for any other song in our Red Baptist hymn book. Because if my kids remember nothing of what I say, which is entirely possible, I want them to at least remember what they've sung. What they've sung is the gospel. Do you remember? Well, let's just sing the one line. You know the line, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath its... Lose all their guilty sayings. Let's just, we won't sing the, the whole chorus, but let's sing the verse together. We, yeah, it's a special snow day. We can do whatever we want. Nobody knows. Nobody's here. Nobody's judging. I think my wife has already left because she wasn't feeling wonderful. So, really, I can quite do anything I like. So, let's do this. Right? Sing with me to cover up the sound of my scratchy voice. There is a fountain filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That's the gospel. That that's the fountainhead of the gospel, because. You cannot receive anything that God has planned for you. You cannot be part of the new creation blessings of God while you are covered in the filth, stain, and offense of sin. But thanks be to God, all of that can be removed. All of that can be washed away through the blood of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? Amen. There was nothing like that in Old Testament Judaism. There was no character whose death had any sacrificial value. Think of that. There's, there's no character like that. All, who are the great characters in the Old Testament? I mean we could name 20. but surely the Mount Rushmore would, would, would be, you know, on Mount Rushmore, the Old Testament would, would be Moses and David, two men who committed arguably the greatest sins recorded of saints in the Old Testament. One wonders why that is. One wonders whether God left them to themselves enough such that their true humanity, fallenness, and sinfulness did shine through even the glory of their deeds so that we would all be very clear that the Bible is not a story of good guys and bad guys. It is a story of bad men and women who need Jesus. There is no one whose death has any sacrificial value other than the person and work of Jesus. And that's what Peter is saying. Do you want to participate in the new covenant blessings of God? Do you want to be part of the new creation? Do you want to be a part of all that that God is doing? Then you must come first and deal with Jesus. There is salvation in no other name because no other death No other death has ever had value and merit sufficient for all but that death, but that man, but that life, but that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is the fountainhead of the gospel. And so, of course, our salvation is first and foremost... A salvation from sin. We must have the stain and offense of sin wiped away such that the windows of heaven may be opened and the blessings of God flow down. So sin is, first and foremost, a salvation. Our salvation is first and foremost, a salvation from sin, but there is more. We see also that it is a salvation unto strength. There are a couple ways uh, that that point is made in this lovely story, the obvious one, of course is the fact that in this great work of healing and salvation, this brother is literally lifted up onto his feet and enabled to stand once again like a man. As soon as he had contact with Jesus, through the preaching of the apostles, the Bible says, immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. So if that is a picture of salvation, then obviously salvation is about making us strong. It is about lifting us up onto our feet again. It is about giving us back our purpose and dignity. It is about restoring us to the calling we had at first. Of course we get a picture of that in the healing of the lame man, but I think there's another picture of it as well in the story. Look at Acts 4.13. It says, Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Do you see? It wasn't just the lame man that was getting strong in this story, it was Peter and John as well. Peter, who just a short while ago denied Jesus three times on the night that he was arrested. And, of course, it's not just Peter. We often talk about Peter, but he at least followed more than all the rest. The Bible says that when they came for Jesus, when they arrested Jesus, all the disciples fled. Peter at least followed from a distance. But John, too, abandoned the Lord. And so these were weak men just a few weeks ago. But now here in this story, they are remarkably strong. Now they are healing people. Now they are preaching the bible now they are commending christ now they are defying even the power and authority of the state who are these people listen to peter this is how he's talking now whether it is right in the sight of god to listen to you rather than to god you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard who is this guy who are these men where did they find this sudden strength and the answer of course is jesus When Jesus saves us, he doesn't just forgive us. By the way, it feels almost blasphemous, doesn't it, to put the word just in front of the phrase forgive us. But to be faithful, we must, because the Bible says he doesn't just forgive us. He also makes us strong. This is salvation in all its fullness. This is the salvation that was prophesied all the way back in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 36, the prophet records God as promising, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. So that's the washing part. God understood that there was, there was a significant settled problem between himself and Israel. God had a desire to bless Israel. Israel had a desire to receive blessings, and yet there was always the problem of sin. And, uh, you know, as the prophet said, it is a bit of a problem when God would like to bless you, but he has fired off heat-seeking missiles from his throne to destroy sin, and you eat sin three meals a day. That's the essential challenge of the Old Testament. There's an old saying, it's very hard for a holy God to bless sinful people. It's so hard, such a problem could only be solved by the cross. And so, of course, God promises that. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will deal with that issue. But that's not all that is promised in that passage. God goes on to say, and, wonderful word that is, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Listen to all these ands. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That is salvation in all its fullness. God says, I'll wash your heart. I'll take away the the sin target that attracts the wrath of God, that blocks the blessings of God. I'll deal with that. But then I'm going to do more than that. I'm going to put something inside of you that is going to make you strong. Louis Burkhoff, the old Princeton theologian, describes regeneration, this new heart, new inner power, salvation, this way. He says, regeneration is that act of God by which the principle of the new life is implanted in man and the governing disposition of the soul is made holy. It is a fundamental change in the principle of life and the governing disposition of the soul and therefore affects the whole man. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that sound wonderful? Twice in that definition, he uses the phrase, the governing disposition of the soul. That's everything, isn't it? That's the whole ballgame right there. That's the difference between limping along in your sin and at least being thankful for some means of washing it away and beginning to live again like the human being you were created to be. Because here's here's the hard truth that the Bible shares with us. After the fall, after the fundamental injury done to our nature, human beings all do what they want, but they are weak and their wants have changed. And now they are attracted to things that make them sick, like a dog that returns to its vomit. They are attracted to things that make them sick and that make them weak. But thanks be to God, when we come to Jesus, we get a wash and an injection of the principle and spirit of new and eternal life. And we begin to want better things. We begin to be attracted to better things. We begin to desire better things. We begin to make life-giving choices. And slowly but surely, by one degree of glory toward the next, we begin to change, and to grow. Our feet and our ankles become strong. We are lifted up and we stand once again as human beings. There is a new governing spirit in us that makes us strong, I will say to you, if you haven't been tracking with us for the last decade or so, this is why we fought the fight that we fought in the CBOQ. You see, the fight in the CBOQ was, I want to be careful to make sure that you understand what was going on there. Everybody in that argument was agreed that we want to reach out to LGBTQ friends and neighbors with love and gospel concern. There was no one in the conversation who didn't agree with that. The conversation that took about a decade to have in the CBOQ was about what do we mean by the the gospel? When you say you want to reach out to LGBTQ folks with love and gospel concern, what is the gospel? Friends, what we were fighting for is a gospel that contains within it power to change. Because I'll tell you what my gospel is not. My gospel is not that God accepts and welcomes and loves and celebrates whoever you are today. My gospel is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then he put in our heart the new disposition of life, health, and change. Such that by one degree of glory, we may become changed, transformed into the very image of Christ. For this comes by the Spirit who is the Lord. That's my gospel. And I believe that's the gospel that is given to us, that is celebrated in the text of Holy Scripture. That's what the fight was about. Preserving a gospel that has within it the power to change. Preserving a gospel that has the power to make dead people Live preserving a gospel that can completely change the inner disposition of the human soul. It's a new creation gospel. By the way, have you ever noticed in this story that that is what Peter that was Peter's takeaway. That's the takeaway. He wanted everyone in the crowd to take home with him that, that day. He didn't want them going home talking about the healing. He wanted them going home talking about something else. Look at verse two, Acts four verse two. They were te- this is after the, after the miracle itself. They were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Isn't that interesting? That's what Peter thought the takeaway was. He wasn't saying to a crowd of people, this healing proves that you can be healed. He was saying, this healing proves that you can be resurrected. And that's the great hope and final outcome of our salvation. The Apostle Paul says, behold, I tell you a great mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. You see, that is the salvation that is celebrated in the Bible. A salvation that changes us. The change begins the moment we come to Christ. That's when you get the new heart. That's when you get the inner disposition. That's where all of a sudden now, there's an engine in you that is driving you towards holiness. And so the change starts the moment you get saved. The change continues by one degree of glory to the next over the entire course of your Christian life. And the change culminates climaxes and is fully realized at the second coming of Christ or the resurrection of our bodies. Isn't that wonderful? The great news is in the new heavens and the new earth, you will have a body. I trust you know that, right? Please don't let your eschatology and your theology be overly influenced by Philadelphia cream cheese commercials. You're not going to be floating around playing a harp on a cloud, Okay, according to the Bible, salvation, the end of salvation, is you in the restored universe in a physical body, praising and delighting in God for all eternity. Your future, if you are in Christ, is an embodied future. You know that? You know how I know that? Because right now, there's a human being in a body in the very presence of God, Jesus Christ. You know, he didn't shed his body when he ascended into heaven. So if there is right now a human being in the presence of God, then there will surely be for all eternity human beings in the presence of God. That's the miracle that this miracle points forward to. This guy got a foretaste. He got new feet and new ankles. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. I want more than that. And as you can see for yourself, I need more than that, right? I need the whole package, And according to the Bible, I shall have it, along with every other man, woman, and child who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. We get new everything. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So the salvation that is ours in Christ is first and foremost a salvation from sin. It is secondly a salvation unto strength. And then lastly, it is a salvation for worship and joy. We've already touched on that just a little bit. Of course, it's an obvious feature of the story. As soon as the brother felt strength coming back into his body, the Bible says, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. That is a picture of salvation. Salvation is not just from a bad outcome to a good outcome. Salvation is about making us, again, the people we were created and intended to be. And, of course, this healing provides a wonderful picture of that. There is another very good picture of that at the very end of your Bible. It's very easy to find. If you're in Acts now, you just turn to the right. When you hit leather, you go back about three pages. Revelation 21, verses 23 to 26, has a beautiful picture of salvation in terms of the end of the process. John's talking about the new creation. He's speaking about it under the metaphor, the figure of of a new Jerusalem, a new city of God. And he says, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. I'm not sure if you know this, but most theologians understand this vision at the end of the New Testament as basically an expansion, a repackaging, a re-release, as it were, of the great vision of the new heavens and the new earth that is contained at the very end of the book of Isaiah. Listen carefully, and you'll spot the similarities. Isaiah records God as saying, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Isn't that interesting? In both depictions of the new heavens and the new earth, it says that for all eternity we will be worshiping God. But it's far more than singing. That's what we tend to think. We're like, well, I don't actually have a great singing voice, and and I don't know if I really like singing, and do I really want to sing for all eternity? Interesting. P.S., I'm assuming we all have great singing voices in heaven. Uh, But interestingly, there is no mention in this picture of anyone singing. Singing is not a feature. It doesn't mean it's not happening. I'm just saying it's not the emphasis. It's not the focus. The focus actually is on this regular process of going in and out. So obviously, we are somewhere in the renewed universe. We are coming into the very throne room of God, and we are going out. Both passages suggest that rhythm and call it worship. Going in and going out. We go out into creation, and we make things as we were originally told to do. We cultivate, we produce wonderful, marvelous Things with which to serve one another and worship the Lord. That's what healed people are going to do. That's what resurrected people are going to do. That's what strong people are going to do for all eternity. We are going in and out, bringing to God the glory of the nations. But the text also says, both texts also say, that not everyone is going to be a part of that wonderful, joyous process. Both Old Testament and New Testament versions of this vision contain a warning. Nothing unclean is going to enter in. Nothing that remains soaked in sin. Nothing unwashed, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those who have had their robes made clean in the blood of Jesus Christ, only those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life, only those who have put their trust in the person and work of Jesus. For there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is only Jesus. So come. Come unto this Jesus and be saved. Saved from sin, saved unto strength, and saved for worship and joy for all eternity. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Let's bow our heads and pray. And, and, and just with, with heads bowed, I want to suggest a couple of prayer applications for you to consider. Consider it with your eyes closed. Consider it with your hearts quieted. I think there are three ways you could pray in response to this. I think, first of all, I think many of us probably hear in this passage an encouragement, or should hear an encouragement to move forward in our salvation. I think a great many Christians stop at the fountain of washing and regeneration. They are happy to be forgiven, as well they should be, as surely we all are. But they didn't know that there was more. They didn't know there was power to change. They didn't know that there was strength to be strong. And so maybe today you just need to open your hands to that. You need to open your heart to that. You need to look up into heaven, and you need to say, God, I see that now, and I want it. By supplies of your Spirit, strengthen my inner disposition. Strengthen my ankles and my feet, and allow me now to begin walking faithfully in your ways. That would be a good prayer for you. Another potential prayer response would be to confess a sin that you have been harboring in your heart, that you have been cherishing, that you have not confessed unconfessed sin. If your sin has not been confessed and through repentance hung on the cross of Jesus Christ, then it has not exhausted its potential to attract The wrath of God. It has not exhausted its potential to obscure and block the blessings of God. And so be washed. Confess that sin. And don't just confess it to Jesus. Do that first. But then remember James 5 says confess your sins to one another. I do think there is something very important about having it come out of your mouth. Ideally, it should come out of your mouth mouth towards the one that has been wronged. So husbands, wives... If there is a sin that you have sinned against your spouse, confessing it to Jesus is a wonderful beginning. Confessing it to your spouse is the appropriate end. And there it should end, for it should now be covered under the blood of the Lamb. And you should be free now to begin receiving power and grace from on high. And then a third potential application in prayer this morning would be for some of you, I'm sure, To begin at the beginning, to be meeting with God at the foot of the cross, and to be cleansed in the fountain of Christ's blood. While our heads are still bowed, I'm just going to ask. I mentioned a few weeks ago, Jesus commanded bodies in the water, not hands in the air. Meaning, He said we were to go into the world and make disciples, baptizing them, not asking them to raise their hand, baptizing them. There's something very important and special about standing in the waters, acting out the great work of salvation, identifying with it publicly. But I also said that many bodies in the water began as hands in the air. So I, I'm gonna ask that today if if you are hearing this and realizing I need to meet Jesus at the cross, I need to be cleansed, I need that fountain, all you crazy Christians were singing about. I need a fountain. I need to be cleansed. I need a new beginning. I need to get rid of whatever is attracting the wrath of God in my life. I need that. Well, if that's you, I would invite you to raise your hand right now, and that's not because that means anything. It actually is an invitation for me to pray for you and an invitation for me to direct Matt towards you so that he can speak to you about baptism. Yeah. Good. Well, let me pray for us now, and you can pray along with me in one of those three ways. Heavenly Father, we know in a room of this size there'll be folks who simply stopped at the fountain, received their forgiveness, rejoiced in it, were glad in it, but never knew that there was strength to be strong, that there was power to move forward, that there was recreating, renewing, renovating strength through the Spirit of Jesus. And so, Lord, I I pray today that those hearts would open to you right now and in faith would be able to grab hold and would be able to receive and begin now to make progress by one degree of glory to the next. I pray, Lord, for those who have been harboring sin and attracting hardship, attracting spiritual attention of a difficult kind. I pray for those who have been blocking their own blessing by holding on to bitterness and sin that has not been confessed and dealt with. I pray today that they would do that. They would do it first with you, and then with your help, they would do it with those they have wronged. And then, Lord, I pray for those who have heard today of something they desperately need that can only be found at the foot of the cross, I pray that by your Spirit, you would guide them, you would help them, you would lead them, you would meet them, you would wash them, and you would save them. For there is salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus. So it is in his name we pray, amen.